Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications, Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to tfunk.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogrian and Tony Lindgren, the engineers that mastered bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator, Sepultura, Amana Marth, and many more by using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator. You'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year. Visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuggah, Periphery, The Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Also, I want to take a second to tell you about something I'm very, very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and of course, hanging out. You know, this industry is all about relationships, and think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can not only help you with inspiration and motivation, but also with potential professional collaborations? I've seen a lot of professional collaborations come from the summit in the past. And speaking of networking and relationships, there's no other event where you'll get to learn from and hang out with some of the very best in the production business. I mean, you could go to something like NAM, but good luck getting more than five minutes with your hero. At this, you actually will get to hang out, like hang out, hang out. And just a few of this year's instructors are Andrew Wade, Kerpaloo, Blasco, Taylor Larson, Billy Decker, Canyon Kevin Cherko, Jesse Cannon, and more. Seriously, this is one of the best and most productive events you will ever go to. So if that sounds like something that's up your alley, go to urmsummit.com to find out more. Hello, everyone. First of all, I just want to apologize for the weird recording quality on my voice right now. I'm recording this intro in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon. I'm in Portland for Nail the Mix with Chris Crummett, which is going to be really, really cool. Anyways, today's podcast episode is a great one. I have the producer Colin Britton on, who is one of the best modern rock I don't want to say rock because he does so many different things, but it, it's it's like rock uh, with hybrid elements producers that I know of that exists now. And he played me some stuff that's coming up, and it just blew my mind. His ability to meld different influences together is bar none. And uh, he's worked with some 
pretty impressive bands like One OK Rock, Five Seconds of Summer, Dashford Confessional, Papa Roach, on and on. I mean, the guy has quite the backlog. He's a really cool guy. And one of the things that we talk about in this episode that is super cool was how to make a better vibe for your clients. Because that's something that's talked about a lot in, you know, in podcasts and in giving advice for people on how to have a more successful studio will create a good vibe. But what does that even mean? You know, there, there's a lot of room for error or for experimentation. There's just a lot of, a lot of gray zone there with what that even means. But he has some great stories to share about how he created vibes for certain situations that will blow your mind. Some of the best, coolest, most original studio stories I've ever heard in my life. And talk a lot about what long-term networking really means, how to really do it, how to go from, you know, being a local level musician to working with the top of the top and how he did it step-by-step in addition to just talking about what kinds of things he prioritizes in his productions, which do become hits. So this is relevant to all of you. I hope you enjoy this conversation because I sure did. Here we go. Colin Brennan, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me. It was nice meeting you at the URM dinner. Uh, I didn't actually think you were going to come. I was positively surprised that you came. Me too. It was delicious. Really was. It, dude, that place is great. Right. Um, and I'm like you were just saying, I'm actually really stoked to hear that you're into audio education. It, the thing that I was going to say is that this kind of stuff really didn't exist for heavier genres when we were coming up uh, at all. And so I just remember it being a wasteland looking for information. And I feel like somewhere around 2007 to 2012, there was a lot of talk in the music industry about how music is getting worse. Production's getting worse. Everything's getting worse. It's all going to fall apart. There's no, I don't know, I just figured there needs to be a way to help uh, producers actually get better, at least in our genres. Fuck everything else. At least at least in our genres that aren't taken seriously by schools, that aren't like, uh, it's not taken seriously by schools. You don't see it online, but it's like, these are seriously tough genres to produce. There's nothing good out there. That's got to change. Yeah. I mean, you know, people are like the doomsday mentality. I mean, that's just like how people talk in general. They always say that, you know, oh, the world's ending. Donald Trump's president. The world's ending. Like, you know what I mean? Obama's president, whatever. Like it's, it's been kind of, I feel like it's always been like that. And I think what you're referring to in my perspective is, has been like during that time, I think digital started really catching up. And ironically enough, I mean, I've been doing this since I was 15. I've been doing this since the very early 2000s. Um, and I started on a little like a uh, Fostex 16 track digital recorder. So I never had, like, I didn't even start on a computer. Um, but I know around that time was like the time that like plugins were really starting to find their swing. And you know, people realized, oh my God, I can shit, we can do this in the box only and save tons of money or this and that and the other. And there was, you know, there's like a, a five or 10 year period where people were still, you know, it was growing pains. People were really trying to figure that out. And so I noticed that music in that time, you had like these genres that were trying to put electronics and live instruments together really suffered then because there was, nobody had really figured out how to like mesh the two things. There was like 
it almost always sounded like there was a live band and then just like somebody just like pasted some shitty like electronic stuff on top of it, you know? Um, and I noticed that was like really the case, especially for heavy music during that time. It seemed like, you know, not everything, of course, there was a lot of good stuff that came out then too. But I mean, I feel like a lot of people were struggling trying to figure out how to meld those things together. That's actually a really good way to put it is paste it on top of each other. It's like, it's almost like you had people doing like the one genre that they're really good at. And then this other genre that they kind of suck at. And then they just superimpose the thing that they kind of sucked at over the thing they're really good at kind of cheapens everything. It absolutely does. And I mean, you, you had limitations of it, it. You could really hear the difference to me. And that doesn't include heavy music. Like that's not exclusive to heavy music. I mean, that was in alternative pop music. Like, you know, I could name a, a few bands. I don't want to, but there, there's a few bands from that era. I can remember just hearing some of those songs and you're just like, wow, that's cheesy is what it sounds. It just sounds kind of cheap. And um, even the well-produced pop stuff. And I, again, like I said, I think it went, everybody who was doing it was, you know, struggling to sort of figure out how to work that out. And during that time, I, you know, like there's a couple of bands that I thought did it really well, but usually the bands that did it really well, for example, like the Postal Service um, in the early 2000s, that was all like actually recorded. So all that electronic stuff was actually made with, you know, real like analog gear they just recorded it and then tr diced it up in the box. It wasn't like they were creating it in the box. Um, and that's why that stuff sounds so cool and like organic and like really, you know, expensive, really, whether or not it was. And I think that that's something that um, people just had a hard time with. So it's not just heavy music, but there's something about heavy music, not just metal. I just mean anything that's got distorted guitars that it's, I feel like, is layers more difficult or levels more difficult than some other genres because there's no space, literally no space. I, I agree with that. So, you know, like if you have a raging metal band, if you want to throw an orchestra on it, that's not supposed to work. It's not like there's even that space to begin with. So I feel like, man, and I don't definitely play favorites with genres at all, but I do think that that's the big difference. So like you might have a pop producer who melds different things and it might not be the best thing in the world, but I feel like it's already going to sound way, way better than when someone who's in heavy music tries to do it. Because first of all, well, those other genres sound way better in general, but also there's more difficulty. And that said, uh, in researching your work, uh, that honestly is interesting that we're talking about this first, because I feel like that's what, struck me the most, actually, that you do it really, really seamlessly. People tend to specialize at something, you know? Um, if it, When they get a really good or develop a career, they tend to specialize. The Rick Rubin thing is, like, total anomaly, I think. And he doesn't even engineer that stuff. So, you know, that's also kind of like a mastermind situation. But in, in reality, most people who get really good, develop a career, they've got the one thing they're really good at, and that takes up all their time, all their artistic effort. So it's not that common to hear it authentically done. 
in multiple genres. So I'm actually really curious where that even comes from. Like I see that you were born in Nashville, but I realized Nashville is a big place and there isn't just music there. I, I did grow up. I grew up in 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 Knoxville, and uh, but like all of my family is is based out of Nashville, and I've you know spent tremendous amounts of time there and uh, own property there and stuff. So I mean, like Nashville is is home to me when I go home now. Um, I was actually born in in Pensacola, Florida, which I'm not sure who wrote my Wikipedia page, but um, you know, I will change that out, but that's irrelevant. But um, I appreciate that. And I, you know, look, I, I think that all that comes from, for me, the desire, uh, the love of all kinds of music. And you were talking about Rick Rubin. He's, he's my, without a doubt, my favorite producer. And I, my, my uh, admiration for him stems from basically what you just said, which is mastermind, I believe is the word you said. And I think that it's, you know, something that like young producers don't really get because they get hung way too far up on the technical side of things is they don't realize of like, you know, they don't listen to other genres. Rick Rubin's a mastermind because he is so familiar with so many different genres. Here's something you probably didn't know, but like in the early 90s, he produced like a comedy album. I did know that though. Like, you know, he literally is a mastermind of everything. But and you say he doesn't engineer and and that's that's the thing though is that he's kind of the guy that goes he's like okay all my creative efforts are into knowing when something is right. And he doesn't spend any time doing the engineer so he he's got you know his guys that he trusts that he knows can do that job fully and better than him and he can focus on his vision and that's part of why he's so successful and so I think there's something to take away from that not everybody you know you don't start that way obviously you know you want to start making your songs sounding the best you can and that just like I did like you want to start making them sound so you want to understand the engineering side of it but there's something to be said I think for like keeping your eye on the ball all the time. Look at the big picture, you know, don't just get caught up on like what compressor to use. If your song sucks, it doesn't matter. You know, that's the way I think. Absolutely. That's actually, I mean, that's something that you hear in business a lot. Um, the company owner, like say like a restaurant owner, uh, good ones. Like, I don't know, this is always true, but the owners of like a really good restaurant typically work their way up through all the different jobs in a restaurant so that they know them. And I can tell you with like URM, for instance, uh, there's a lot of stuff I don't do anymore, but I've pretty much done almost, almost uh, like I've never, I'm not a camera guy, but I've done almost every job that I've now assigned to somebody else. Um, and the reason that, that, things work well is because we know what we're delegating to people. And I think, you know, with the Rick Rubin thing, you can't know what's right and you can't pick a teams like that. You can't pick teams that are going to do like successful rap all the way to successful Slayer and Slipknot with like everything in between and not know what you're doing. And I just, I want to bring that up because I feel like sometimes people don't understand like they, so they will take, they will shit talk Rick Rubin um, because of the lack of engineering where that's actually what frees him to be great. I think. Absolutely. And, you know, too, like, think about it, the, think about that, you know, one of the best pieces of educational advice I ever got was um, from my late uh, best friend and mentor. His name was Cato Kandawala. Um, and he 
he basically taught me everything I know, at least started me off uh, in my career several years ago. And uh, the, one of the things that really stuck with me, one of the many things he said, but one of the, the best things he ever said was, he said, you know, people pay me for my taste and they pay you for your taste. So like that's, if your taste isn't good and it's not vast and it doesn't encompass everything, and at least take everything into consideration, all different genres, then how are you going to have the best taste? And that's just, uh, in my opinion, it's like, if you're, whether you're producing a Slipknot record or a, you know, a Day to Remember record or whatever, like, you know, a Kanye record, if, if you don't listen to more music and be open-minded to everything, because, you know, nowadays, especially with DSPs and streaming or, or everything now, um, especially for like the younger generation, it, there's, you know, you'll, you'll hear a playlist with, you know, Papa Roach next to Cardi B. I mean, there's so much cross genre stuff going on right now to be specifically stuck in one genre and not even consider something else, um, isn't going to get you very far. So I think that that's more now than ever applicable for our time. Now, the question I have for you, um, about that is where's, the fine line, um, in your opinion, because here's what I mean. Have you ever noticed that in order to get to a point where you even have a choice of artists, usually you got to specialize to some degree? Because if, I mean, if you look at like the low, the successful local level studio that never goes beyond that, like, uh, which is totally fine if that's, I mean, this, I'm not talking shit at all. If that's like, what you do and you make a full-time living only with local artists and that's totally cool. But that type of studio will generally take on every different type of genre that hits them up. Like one day it'll be a country album, next day it'll be a rap thing, once a month it'll be a metal thing. And it keeps, I think it, it keeps from specialization and that makes it, in my opinion, makes it a lot harder to get great and it also makes it a lot harder to get known at first but then where's the line where uh where so where's the line where you're diluting yourself too much and then where's the line where you're limiting yourself too much okay so I'll, i will answer that in two parts first of all i think that you know the local studio that's that's bringing stuff in and and you know paying the bills i think that that those people you got to start somewhere everybody has to start somewhere and some people are very happy doing that. And I think that's, that's a great thing. Um, it's certainly less stressful. But, but here's the thing. The difference is, is that um, I am, the music business, at least in what we're referring to right now, is, is the music business and production is a service business. You are trying to serve, you know, the artists that you're working for, first of all. But secondly, you know, I'm an artist as well. And my taste is, so I, therefore, I'm not going to work on something that, I don't know how to do to the best of my ability. And therefore, you know, labels at where I'm at in Los Angeles, you know, labels aren't going to hit me up to do a, a Cardi B track. Like, I just don't do that kind of music at this point. And so, you know, you get kind of more specialized, but I, I also find that keeping your mind, you're, you're naturally going to kind of get, you do one really good thing and you're going to get more of that good thing because people are going to want that, right? And that's just how people are. And that's good because it specializes you a little bit more. But I also think that keeping a completely open mind and doing what you're passionate about, like you're going to always win if you are working hard and you're going to work hard 
if you're passionate about something. If you're not passionate about it or if you don't care, then you just, you know, you're working a day job and it's no different than anything else. It might be a cool day job, but it's still a day job. So I don't clock in every day. I don't do studio hours. I only work with bands or mix bands or, you know, write with bands um, that I feel like I have a connection with and, you know, or have a connection at least with the record company or, you know, it's something that I want to do that I feel like I can help and I can bring my art form and combine it with their art form and, and make something great. So I, you know, I turn down people all the time and I'm not being arrogant about that. I'm just saying that's just sometimes you're just like, you know, these guys are great. I just don't really feel the direction. I don't know if it's worth my time or worth their time together to like, you know, put this shit together and make it work or try to make it work. So I, you know, I think that it's just about following your heart and being, you know, being passionate about what it is that you're working for. And that sounds easier said than done. And you got to start somewhere like, you know, look, if, if you're just starting, you've never done any records before and you got one shitty local band that's hitting you up to record, go record them and, and, you know, make them sound as good as you possibly can. I've done that for years. Um, but the goal is to do stuff that you want to do, not just, you know, to pay your bills. The thing too, why it's not arrogant and it's, like, I really want people to understand what you're saying and try to internalize it. Um, in order to be able to say yes to projects that that you can really do your best work on, and this is not just in the studio, this is in life, um, there comes, like, I, I really believe this phrase that you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything. Um, you got to make a decision I mean, it's the same way that when I decided that URM was going to be the thing I'm doing, I stopped doing other things. When I decided that production was going to be the thing I was doing, this was like a significant long time before that, um, I stopped pursuing being a musician in a band. Like, it's it's not that, it's not, and it's not that I didn't, couldn't or couldn't do that or or you know couldn't like put together another band after my band disbanded or something um i actually try like i actually started doing that um with all the dudes that are in that band bad wolves now back in like 2011 we like that <laughs> the original incarnation of that band was with me and them. And then I real like we all we realized it wasn't gonna work, but I realized that I can't pursue a band and do this other thing. And then again, five years later, can't do URM and also do other things. And then I think it's also it's the same thing in the studio, man. If you want to say yes to the clients that bring out your best, it, like you have to say no to the ones that don't at some point. At some point. And that's the thing is like, you know, look, if you, you, you can't say no, if you really want to do something and nobody's, nobody's knocking on your door. I mean, you know, you got to be realistic. And also, you know, look, I, part of what I did when I was coming up, I mean, I, I moved out here. I, I was in a band as well. We, we got signed and, you know, we were on the road for a while and I started songwriting in LA and, and my friend um, Nick Long was like, Hey, you know, you should come out here f like full time. And I wound up working for this producer, John Feldman, who actually just spoke to yesterday. Um, you know, he's, he's done a multitude of amazing work. Um, and I, I came out and worked for him for about, for, you know, a little less than a year and was his engineer. And then I, when I started working on my own, 
I was like, okay, where am I lacking? Like, where's my, you know, I can songwrite, I, you know, produce all this, whatever, where is, where are my skills lacking? And as it turned out, mixing was like my lacking. Um, and I had a, a lot of great opportunities to watch and learn from some great guys. Tom Lord Algae uh, is one of my mentors. Um, learned so much great stuff from him. Kato Kandawala, Dan Corneff is a good friend of mine. I've learned from all these wonderful mixers and producers and, and kind of like how to refine that. So I spent about a year and a half or two years like buying gear and really like building up my mix chops. And then one day I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm going to get back on my original path and start producing again, you know, and that's just what I did. And so now I kind of do both and I have the skills to do both, but you're right, man. And don't, to that, what you just said, aren't you more satisfied and, and happier and more fulfilled though, that you like pick something and you're satisfied and you see it growing, you know, instead of trying to do everything, like, I, I think that that's, that's the way to any also, success. Also, I, I'll be the first to say that, um, I, I don't, I don't think that my talent was like, my talent for actually making music and production, I've always thought it's like pretty good, but it's not the best. It's not like I've always been like a step or two under my friends that are like the best of, and this was with guitar also. I've always been like in those circles, but there's always been dudes who just, they're just better man they're just better like they they work harder they're more passionate about it it's not where my brain is but like i know that what i'm doing now like i'm pretty much like my my job i'm pretty much the best at i agree and i just and i i didn't even know that i, I told you before we started recording this but i to those who don't know i i just met y'all a, a couple of months ago at the urm dinner in los angeles and uh my friend alex prieto who is an amazing engineer and works with me on a lot of projects um plug to alex by the way check his check his workout he's super sick He's been on this podcast and I actually want to talk about him later. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, he, he was like, you should come out. He all invited you and, and, uh, we, we work at the same studio and, and I was like, all right, okay. So I came down and met you guys and Joey was there and Stephen Slate and Dan Lancaster and a bunch of guys that I, that I know. And, and it was just a really, like, it was, it was so much bigger than I realized. And, uh, and so that's why I was just like, this is so sick that you, you know, are, are doing something so positive and, um, you know, Yeah. It, back, backing to what you're saying, you know, it's it's all about finding what you love and sinking your teeth into that. If you don't love it, then why do it? What you but, but what you love and also what you can crush at. Like I think it's important to know those two. Yeah, those come hand in hand. I think. I mean, I I used to love playing soccer. Like I love soccer, but you know, I just. I'm just naturally not like a pro athlete. Like this is not, my genetics just aren't that way. And so no matter how hard I work, there's going to be guys that are just naturally way better. And, you know, if you got to be honest about that stuff, like, dude, like I'm never going to be David Beckham. So why would I work, you know, so hard at doing it? Maybe if I love soccer too, that much, I maybe try to be a coach or something, you know, if you want to get, which is sort of kind of what I decided to do. I mean, I could have gone into uh, being a professional drummer, which I was actually for many years. And, did sessions and stuff, but I, I found it kind of creatively limiting. You, you know what's funny too, man, is the guys that that you probably know some of these guys too that are like those best in the world drummers that actually do follow through with it. They don't find it creatively limiting. Um, for them, it's everything. Like, and that's that's really really important too. That's the same thing I noticed with the those guitar guys around me. Like, 
they that's just was, how they're wired. Yeah, man, it's everything to them. It's not for me. Yeah, and it was like I said, it it was literally everything for me for a long time till it wasn't, and then you started realizing, wow, you know what, like. This, I, my brain is more, I like creating and I was always going back to the studio and learning about, you know, technology and learning about songwriting and, and wanting to get into like creating and, you know, that, um, when I was, uh, I guess back in, in 2012, it was when we did our, our record, my band's record with Kato Kandawala up in New York. And that was like the first label release we had done at that time. And I remember spending months up there and going, just like my mind was just blown by the, like the level at which things were done, you know, versus what in my mind it actually was. And, and seeing that really put me like on a whole different path, I think. So sometimes it takes, you know, it takes a a catalyst to sort of move you into the right direction. And like, I mean, you, you, the URM podcast is, is, could be that for some people. It could be like, wow, listening to you and I talk right now could be like, Wow, people are oh man, I just never really thought about it because no, you know, they didn't have the opportunity to talk to somebody before who's been through it. So I think it's a really cool thing. Well, thank you. So you mentioned all these mentors you got. You mentioned focusing on engineering for a while. How did you even come to the point where you'd have guys like these as mentors? Like where that's I mean I do think that mentorship is the path. Uh, you know, in addition to talent and hard work and all that, like there's a lot of stuff that to what you just said about getting there and and then finally seeing what's actually done in the real, like not in your fantasy about production, but what's actually done that that's crucial, man. It's crucial. Like you can't, you can't get great at something that's got so many moving pieces in my opinion, without having the previous generation show you, the ropes. There's no, there's nothing on earth that works that way. Like it works that way for everything from aviation to goddamn magic tricks to, you know, to this, to the military. Like it's, that's how life works. I think that, and, and especially in such a, a shifting sort of world. And I mean, there's some advantages, I think, to just going in just balls deep without having any like having any idea what you're doing and just relying on pure, like, you know, there's kids with laptops coming up making, you know, dance hits right now. Um, And I think there's something to be said for that. Like just that sort of like unbridled, like passion and talent working, but you know, to do something as complicated and as in depth as what you and I are talking about, like making rock records, specifically rock records. um, There's a tremendous amount of, of old knowledge in there that's, that really is applicable now. And, you know, I think that there's a combination of both, but as far as mentor mentorship goes, I've just been lucky, I'd say, but also I, you know, I think the biggest thing is just being passionate. Like if you're passionate and, you know, you have talent, if you're passionate about it and, you know, you really want to learn, like the universe usually just plucks you right back, you know, puts you right back where in the path of somebody, if you're that passionate about it. It, you're right. I think so too. And that's a tough, that's a tough thing for people to understand though, if they're not, if they haven't experienced it. But I know that I've always been down to give people a shot and everyone I know who like is in the position to do it gives people shots. They give the they, right people, they give yeah, the right exactly. people shots. And I mean, cause there's, you know, I've gone through, I've gone through so many like 
assistants. And in fact, to the point to where Alex Prieto actually does all the interns over here. I don't, Alex and, and my other, my assistant, um, Brennan, actually, they go through them now because I'm like, you can, you gotta, if anybody's going to even come and run coffee over here, you got to vet them first, you know? And, um, and try to figure it out. But I've been through a lot of people because, you know, you find somebody who says they want to do it and they just want a free ride or they want to just come and hang out and be around bands or whatever. And Or they just don't understand what actually doing it sure, entails. Sure, but I mean, I'm okay with that. I think that just maybe I'm okay with not understanding as long as you this is all you want to do. But, you know, my thing is, is like to people who are listening – if you live in, you know, whatever, bumblefuck Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere and you don't have, I mean, there's no studios around, like how are you going to find a mentor? Well, you don't, you, 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 y'all, you are the mentor or you are, I'm Joey Sturgis at what this podcast is, you know, go on Dave Pensado's, Pensado's place. You know, he's got a bunch of crazy cool tips and, uh, for mixing and stuff and, you know, just obsess on it. I mean, the internet is connect, so connected, like 30 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever, it, totally different story, but now everybody's connected. There's no excuse to not try something or learn something. You know, everybody can buy a laptop and an interface and get started. And, you know, once you're able to, if you're in high school, wait till you graduate high school and, and move to Nashville or LA or wherever, move somewhere, you know, where there's more studios and more stuff coming on. And there's always opportunity for those who are talented and want to make, and want to make it happen, I think. We'll be the first to tell you uh, that, you know, the, all the stuff that we show on the internet school, but at the end of the day, like if you really, really want to do it, you kind of need to go to where, where the opportunity is. Yeah. I mean, definitely. And that's why you see local studios, you know, like I said, you, you know, in Bismarck, North Dakota, I don't know, maybe there's some amazing studios there. I'm sure there's amazing studios everywhere, but you're not going to really find the high profile clients, you know, or at least be around that. I mean, just living in North Hollywood, you know, there's Weezer was here at the studio downstairs last week, you know, uh, Snoop Dogg Studios three blocks from here. There's just music everywhere all the time. And it's just like, you know, that's why I'm here um, is because it's just way easier to like to get these people to notice you or to like, you know, to meet people and to vibe with people. So let's talk about Alex a little bit. Um, the and here's why I want to talk about him is because he has worked under some great producers and he's now kind of coming into his own. He's been on the podcast. He's been a friend of mine for a long time and he's one of the best engineers I've met. Like one of the most knowledgeable engineers too. And you know, for people who don't know him, go listen to the podcast he did with us. But you know, he came up under Cornef first. Uh, that's where he really cut his teeth and has been. You know, he's been working his way. I don't want to say up because Dan Corneff has is up. So it's more like Alex has been working his way up and establishing himself uh, for ever since then. But as far as uh, you working with him, that how did you how did you come across him and? What I want to get across to people right now, so the goal of me asking you about this is for people who are looking to get underneath somebody and work their way up and establish their own name over the course of years, Alex is a really good example to follow. Um, to, well, okay, so Alex and I go way back, actually, when I was doing, I met him um, when I was doing my my band's Oh No Fiasco. We were doing a record in 2012 with uh, Cato. 
up in uh, this place called the House of Loud in New Jersey, right across the river uh, from New York. And we were up there for months. He had just graduated from Berkeley. So, you know, to say he started there, he actually had, you know, Berkeley, he was a all-star at Berkeley. Um, and he was interning, he was running coffee for people. I didn't know he was an all-star at Berkeley. He I was, knew that he and, went there, but I didn't really, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and he's, and he just, and he, um, and he, you know, he was running coffee and changing guitar strings and stuff for, for our band. And we were like, you know, he and I, we're about the same age. And we were like, you know, we became friends and um, he's got a terrible sense of humor, just like me. And he became really like close with our band. And By so terrible, you mean amazing. Yeah, exactly. Vastly inappropriate. But um, we wound up taking him out on tour with us on Warp Tour. We did Warp Tour that next summer and he came out with us and, and did our live sound. Um, for Warp Tour, and also at the same time, Pierce the Veil was there, and you know, Vic and I got to be close, and Alex and Vic, and you know, we it was like kind of a, a fun little temporary family. Um, and then when um, you know, Cato and Dan and D David Bendith all split up in their own ways, uh, Alex went with Dan, and you know, I kind of stepped, you know, was still with the band at the time, but I was still doing production with Cato, and then um. A couple of years ago, I was, see, almost a year and a half, two years ago, I remember Alex was just kind of like, you know, I'm just kind of tired of living on Long Island. You know, I'd really just ready to go out on my own. And as it happened, a studio at my studio complex in, in LA had just opened up. And I was like, hey, look, if you want to do this, do it now. I'll hold it for you. I'll just pay the guy the rent just to, to hold it. And, um, you know, just is, I'll hold it for you for a month as long as you can make it out here in a month. And, um, he was like, that was all. He just was like, okay, I'm ready. So he just packed up his dog and every bit of gear he had and, and drove a van out here and was sleeping on his couch in his studio for, for a while. And, um, you know, and now he's kind of just like, you know, it's like having your best friend here. So he's, uh, he's been really great and very, like I said, knowledgeable. And even before he was out here, I would call him up and I'd be like, Hey man, you know, do you have any like vocal widening techniques that I haven't heard of? And he'd call me sometimes and be like, Hey dude, like, what'd you do on that snare drum on, you know, whatever record. And you know, like that one, okay, rock record, dude, that snare sounds crazy. Like how'd you do? So we were always constantly back and forth, like, you know, sharing information and, um, and just, you know, just geeking out on tech stuff and on music and, Cool but, shit like but that. you had a so you had a legitimate relationship friendship um for a long time yeah yeah definitely so like it worked out it just worked out just like i said serendipitous universe worked out to that there was uh at the right time he was kind of trying to leave that this this studio this production studio opened up here and um yeah so it, that's that's kind of the rest has been history so it hasn't been that long, really, actually. He's been here for, like, less than two years. But, and I mean, you know, LA's, it's, you know, music business is kind of political. So sometimes I'll, um, you know, I'll have him mix something, like, in just, you know, test mix. Oh, well, we want you to mix this, Colin, because you've, you know, you did this other stuff. And I'll be like, cool, and I'll give Alex a shot at it just to see what he does, and I'll turn it in. And sometimes they're like... Well, this is sick. Like we did that on the Papa Roach record actually. And labels like, this is sick, man. Like, and I'm like, cool. And then Alex has got a mix cut, you know? So I'm working him in cause I really think that he's gonna, he's, he's gonna like just take off one day. It's kind of, um, amazing for you to say that. And I'm just, um, I'm saying that it's amazing for you to say that cause I'm sure that you know, people just like I do that will get a star under them, like a person that they know is going to be a star. And then, 
uh, not give them the credit, not help sure. them work their way in. Sure, but that's pointless, man, because there's so much where I, I don't, I, well, I just don't, I've, I've never understood that. Like, because to me, it just doesn't make sense to, because like, there's, first of all, there's so much work to be had. Like I haven't been able to like hardly sleep <laughs> for like the last four years. So I don't know how you could like, be, I mean, you'd have to be kind of psycho to my, in my opinion, to just think that like, oh, I got to keep all this work for myself. Like who the fucking, who fucking cares? <laughs> just like, you know, be cool. And, you know, friends will do, if you're, if you treat people well, it's like the golden rule. You treat people well, you know, people will treat you well and, and people will be loyal to you. And it's not a self-serving thing. I just like seeing my friends win, you know? So that makes me happy, but I'm not everybody, I, I guess. You're not everyone, but I know, like, uh, one of the things that I've always thought is really cool is, uh, and uh, I guess not that many people have experienced this, but if you get, if you're lucky enough to experience it, um, you'll understand. Uh, being able to make money and have success with your friends is a really, really cool thing. Absolutely. Super cool. I mean, I work with, you know, my co-producer on uh, Papa Roach is, is my, one of my best friends, Nick Furlong. And, um, he does more like the writing side of, of things and lyrics and stuff. He's stupendously talented and we have the, the best time ever working on stuff. I love collaborating with my friends. And even if you make a little less money, you know, cause you're splitting it with them, like, I mean, dude, that's kind of the dream. When your squad succeeds, you succeed. I don't know. That's the way. That's the way the rappers do it. <laughs> they all seem like they're having fun. I I do think that's the way it works. I mean, and all uh, as far as URM goes, whenever people ask, like, what's the so number one thing they can do, um, you know, besides the obvious, and it's build build relationships and. Uh, really try to help your friends and build real relationships with people. Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. I just, I mean, you've heard about the the ten thousand hour rule. It's kind of cliche. Well, I was gonna say it's ten thousand hours is like the you know, I guess what the research says, Mark Glasner says, or whatever. But I feel like actually in the music industry, because of it's constantly changing and there's a lot of it's subjective, almost all of it's subjective. You, you like you said, it's more like 20,000 hours because you really have to learn how to be pliable and, you know, be able to mix something that doesn't really sound like it. Cause you know, I'm always out there trying to find the new thing, but you also, you know, you got to hit the, the markers on the head so people don't totally freak out. Uh, so, all right. So speaking of that, um, when, uh, when would you say that, you switched over from being able to, I guess, support yourself from the real world. When did you switch over to 100% music and audio? I think that happened actually a long time before I was um, producing full-time. Um, I was playing like in wedding bands and stuff like that and cover shows and I was playing guitar and singing for, you know. So you found a way to, to do it. That's how I started. And I was teaching drum lessons for a while. There, there was, there were ways that I like small little gigs that I kind of found to sort of like keep myself afloat while our band was just coming up. And then towards the end there, you know, we were touring for pretty much full time. And then I literally went straight from touring to moving to LA and, and working for John. And, um, so it's, it's kind of a hard question to ask. It's, it was a, it was a very gradual sort of thing. 
But um, it sounds to me like uh, the way you set it up at the beginning allowed you to put, uh, you know, back to the 10,000, 20,000 yep. hour thing. That sounds to me like what allowed you to put in the time necessary to get good enough to level up, even if it overall it takes, you know, a decade or more. I think it takes a decade or more for everybody. But point is that you, even early on, um, you created a situation where you could get better and level up. You know, up. I, I did some, like, playing the weddings gigs and stuff. Like, I, you know, I would play acoustic guitar and, like, play drums with my feet kind of and, like, sing. And I learned, like, 300 songs. You know, I had a big song book. Oh, and, you're one of those guys. Dude, no, well, no. It was it was very, trust me, it was a little little bit uh, rough there in the beginning. But, you know, I really wasn't a great guitar, good guitar player even at that time. And I wasn't that great of a singer. I would sing backgrounds in our band and stuff. But I didn't really know how to, like, lead project my vocals correctly. And so like, you know, a couple of years of doing that, all of a sudden you learn how to have time with, you know, play guitar like really well. And you learn other people's song structures. You learn a lot about songwriting and like, you know, these great songs that people want to hear. You learn the structures and like the melody structures and you learn so much about music and about theory and, and, you know, also learning how to sing and like really actually sing. And, you know, those kind of things, even though I don't like sing every day now I, I know how to and I can direct but you know it makes me a great vocal producer because that's I know exactly how to make my voice manipulate myself to to do certain styles of music and like that's invaluable like I wouldn't trade that time for the world it's just great experience to have as a producer you know because I was a drummer and like a, a bass player before that I didn't really like play a whole lot of guitar and then you know, now like guitar is a very, very comfortable instrument for me. So it, it's just like all really great stuff. And I mean, not everybody can do that or not everybody wants to do that. And, but that's what worked for me. And, you know, there's different avenues to do all kinds of stuff. Like that's just one thing that happened to me. All right. Let's, okay. You, you just talked about vocal production. Let's talk about some actual, like specific musical stuff. Cause we've been talking about philosophical things and career stuff, but Speaking about vocal production, first of all, me personally, that's that was always the hardest thing for me. I think because coming up through metal, vocals were typically an afterthought. Um, and they're the last thing you do in metal traditionally. Right. Sure, sure. It just so like to me, that's always the thing I was worst at. Um, and so guys that were really great at vocal producing, I got like I got mentored by Jason Sukoff, who was a great vocal sure. producer for metal and I've seen these guys who are really great at it and it's always been super impressive to me but what I've noticed is that typically they're vocalists um not always but typically like where do you think that you're because uh, I, I do think you're a great vocal producer thank you um where does that come from with you like like, how do you get that out of your artists? Where's that coming from? Uh, to be honest with you, now I, I, I mean, this this sounds like a half-ass answer, but I, I really feel like now I'm so lucky, and have worked really hard to be to the point to where the most of the artists that I work with now are like really, really great. Like they just do it. So it's actually a lot easier. I mean, it's easier to work with a band who has a lot of talent. I got to say that. And so source material is number one. I, you know, when Alex Gasgarth comes in from All Time Low and he's like, you know, we usually write a song and he'll just cut a vocal right there. And it's just like, yep, that sounds great. Cool. Let's just do a few more takes of it. Sometimes, you know, we'll work on like easier ways to sing things, you know, but for the most part, I mean, most of the guys that I know 
you just, I don't know, you just kind of have to feel it. And, and again, a lot of this comes back to taste, which means like, you know, execution is one thing, but knowing when something's wrong is another thing. So that knowing when something is wrong or could be better is by far the most important thing. Execution, you can kind of figure it out, like watch for vocal tutorials and stuff. But again, when people get, same thing as engineering, when you get too caught up, like in the whole technical side of things, you lose the the most important part, which is the actual performance and the energy of it. I'd rather something be out of tune than, and, you know, have to fix it or whatever with Melodyne than, you know, lack the the correct delivery. And that just comes from years and years of listening to music and like, you know, knowing what's current. And yeah. But dude, it's not, ju- it's not just that. It's also how you communicate with these people. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's another thing. You're right. I, I didn't even think about that. No, look, I think that it's about finding um, a connection, a genuine connection to people. And um, that just goes with just, you know, being comfortable with yourself and just knowing that you've got the chops and, you know, people really understand that like, when they come into my studio or any studio and, you know, I connect with an artist and we're like, cool, let's do a vocal. Like, you know, I know that I can get it done. Like, and knowing that and they can, most artists are sensitive, very hypersensitive, most people, uh, great artists anyways. And, you know, they can feel that. They can feel if you're comfortable. And if you're comfortable, that makes them comfortable. And, you know, I try to like really make everybody that works with me feel that they are going to be their best at the end of the day. And I don't try to put a lot of pressure on them, but sometimes people need a little bit of pressure. So you got to know when that, and there's really no way to like explain how to do that other than just doing it a lot. And, you know, being able to read people and sort of like connect with people and just imagine yourself in their shoes. And, uh, you know, and then again, listening to a lot of music and, and at the same time knowing what sounds good and what doesn't. And when it's done. So, and there's, you know, there's all kinds of techniques we could go into, but I mean, the techniques vary drastically from metal singers to, you know, screamers to growlers to like, you know, to pop singers to anything. Like, as a matter of fact, we just put out, I don't know if you're familiar with these, we just put out a fast track for URM enhanced members uh, that is all about vocal, uh, communicating with the vocalist for non produce for non vocalists. Um, so it covers all these types of technique, technical techniques for talking to a vocalist, uh, because sometimes I've noticed that these producers who are really good at talking to vocalists, they're vocalists themselves. So they just will create a sound or something and like show the guy what to do or whatever, the guy or the girl what to do. Um, or, you know, they can communicate like a vocalist, but if you're not a vocalist, then, it's significantly more difficult to to do it. Yes, I agree. And the the one thing too that I I would say that a lot of young producers um, make a mistake of is they will beat the singer to death. Like they'll have them do like a hundred takes, and that's just not the way to do it. That's the one tip I would say is is do it in as few takes as you can do it and move on and keep the session moving. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll be like, all right, look the vocalist is having trouble with this line. We've done it eight times. And he's having trouble getting this phrasing right on this first two lines of the, the verse. So I'll be like, cool. All right, let's, let's, let's jump on. So we'll, we'll sing the rest of the verse. I'm like, that sounds great, man. Let's sing the pre-chorus real quick. And then we'll come back after that. We'll come back. Like, hey, all right, great. You're loosening up. So, you know, sing the second verse now, have him sing the second verse, then go back to the trouble line at the beginning and, you know, keep the pace moving to where they don't get stuck. Cause if you just do one line over and over again, 
the, the energy is going to get totally lost. The emotion is going to get lost. So just keep your session moving. Even if you don't get what you need the first time, you can always go back to it and just, you know, keep a mental note in your head as to what you need to fix. You know, what I would add to that is a start, and especially for the metal guys out there who do vocals last, to start as early as possible so that you can do what Colin just said. Some of these really good metal producers will start doing vocals the moment that there's some base like basic tracks down. Yeah, totally, dude. And that goes for every that goes for everything. I mean, honestly, like I I track vocals like as soon as the song's written, as soon as you can. And you can always go back and fix it and always go, you know, don't obsess over stuff, but you know, thing is is like metals is about, you know, one of my favorite bands is uh metal bands is Converge. And it's a little old school, but Kirk Ballou, I think he's an amazing producer. You know, I, I really like his style and just his organic style. And, and I, the one thing I think about that is just it, you can feel the anger and the, just the pissed offness. And all the way back to like Rage Against the Machine, which is not a metal band at all, but like you just feel how pissed off he is when he did that. And, you, and I for sure know that that took him like maybe a couple of takes and he did it early as he possibly could. And, uh, you know, Jacoby's, dude, Jacoby from Papa Roach is the same way. I mean, y'all see on this next record, which I'm uh, so proud of and we worked so long on, but, you know, half of the vocals were, were like demo vocals that we just did. And I literally hand him an SM7 through my, my chain and I'm like, go. And we blast the speakers in the room and he just freaking just spits it. And it's heated, like so, so heavy. Um, because he's just like, yeah, he's turned up and he's, you know, you got to just read, read the room and, and feel if, if that's where it comes from. And so a lot of times, like, especially with the more seasoned artists, you can kind of like, it, it's more about the energy that they have and when they have it rather than like the perfect performance. Yeah. And if you start early, then, you know, if one day sucks and the energy's not there, it's not the end of the world. But if you're at the end of the record and you've got five days left. Uh, and no, no vocals done. That's where you get into those got to do hundred takes. Yeah. Yeah. And guess what too? Here's another thing you, that even though in a lot of like metal genres, like the vocal is sort of buried and it's not like the necessarily the main focus. It's like people get so turned up about like guitar tones and snare tones, man. And I'm just like, whatever, dude, like, let me hear your riff. Like, is your riff sick? If it's not, then I don't care what your guitar sounds like. Same thing with the vocalist. Like, if you put a vocal straight up in the top, like, early on in the recording process, and it's just sick, and it's even if it's rough, it's like, all right, yeah, that energy is sick. You know, you might be like, oh, man, that guitar riff is just not as heavy as that initial, you know, and you might have to re-examine some of the rest of the stuff around it, and it just makes your song better. No matter how important the vocal is to the final product or not, you know, it's the human connection. It's the one thing that people can hear actually coming from a person. So there's something to be said for that, I think, in all genres. Man, I think that the metal, the vocals of metal are just as important. I don't, like, I get that, okay, so you've got other things in heavier genres that uh, matter too in ways that they don't matter, I guess, like riffs. But two examples, um, Lamb of God and Slipknot. Uh, Corey Taylor is one of the best, like, rock vocalists. Oh, 100%. Period. They used to have a different singer. Like, anyone who wants to learn about Slipknot that doesn't know, try to find their shit before Corey Taylor. I, didn't, try I actually to, didn't know that that, that, that existed, but I'm going to go check oh it out. Oh, man, it's not good. <laughs> it's it's like... Corey Taylor uh, is... Corey Taylor is... And I've, I've met him a couple times. He's, like, the nicest dude ever. And just what a... Just 
I mean, what a talent. He's magnetic, Holy too. Holy shit, it's, man. His level of charisma in real life is... But what a voice, dude. He's my favorite. He's I would have to say, hands down, he's my favorite like metal singer. And I consider him a metal singer because he really is. Like, listen to that guy scream, and he will blow your eardrums out. I mean, he's... And he really screams, too. He doesn't do any of this fake, you know, the like fake stuff where it's like, you know, whispery. Like he is a scream. He will scream in your face. <laughs> and it's, I love it. Love it. Love Corey Taylor. Okay. So that's one example where the band, like without that, who knows? And the other example I've got is uh, uh, Lamb of God, which we just had. So I'm bringing it up is uh, I think that for the, for like non-commercial metal, you know, that's as big as it gets besides, Pantera or something like for, uh, and yeah, they're great. And the vocals are turned, uh, like I talked to Machine about this on, uh, like on Nail the Mix. Like I had to confirm because I've always wondered, but the uh, the vocals are kind of loud, like a like a pop record. Not maybe not as loud as a pop record, but they're loud. They're really loud. Like you can hear, you can understand everything he's saying, and it's loud, proud, and in front and. Uh, that's, I, I think that that's part of why it works. Um, like they prioritize those vocals. Both those bands that are like as big as it gets, they prioritize the vocals. There's something to be said there. I'm just saying, I think people really connect, like most people, you know, look, if, if you don't care what most people, the punk rock attitude is like, well, fuck it, we don't care what anybody thinks, you know, except for us and our fans. And the truth is, is that that's, that's fine if you want to think that way. But I also think, too, that for me, it's more satisfying when, you know, you can impact the most amount of people. And I've been to Slipknot shows. I've seen how many people just absolutely really feel what they're doing. And, uh, and Lamb of God is no different at all. And there's just something to learn from that. And it's because I think it's because of the humanity that's coming through that's, you know, intelligible. You can understand what he's saying, and you can connect them to the lyrics, which is a whole different thing that you know sometimes gets lost. I think in in super heavy genres. I, th- I think in the super heavy genres, I don't think. I actually just made a video about this. It's called Metal Mix Hall of Fame. I went through a team of board gear track, um, which I think is a great track, and the track is in Norwegian actually, which made it even cooler to me because I didn't understand a word he sang. Uh, like I think the it just sounded cool, and I actually think that for those super extreme genres, it's less about the lyrics and more about the feeling they evoke. And point being that like you don't even understand what he's saying in that Demu song, and it's fucking like you understand all the atmosphere. You you like you get it. You'll feel it if you actually listen to it. But you, I mean who knows what he's actually talking about. Another example I brought up, and a lot of German people got on me about this, um, but I'm going to stand my ground. When Rammstein got big in the United States uh, with Duhast, nobody here understood what that meant. No, you're right, but I do do remember that. I was in middle school when that happened, and that was... My friend Michael, uh, Michael McDonald. His name was Michael McDonald for real, and he uh, and he played that for me, and like in like English class or something, and and like you know I was like sixth grade or whatever, and and I was so <laughs> so terrified. Yeah, there there was the, dude, there was scary, but it. I think that the 
it's I now I know that in German it's actually a really uh, clever wordplay between um, you have and you hate, and they're talking like they they do what a lot of rappers do in English and use these really clever wordplays with several meanings and like intersperse these meanings throughout their lyrics, but. In the U.S., we didn't understand a word he was saying, and it still got huge. We understood the feeling, though. Like, the feeling, and they, they did prioritize those vocals, but they, they, the production came across in a way to where we understood the, the feeling of it all and the emotion behind it without even understanding what it meant. But they were still prioritized. I agree. I agree. But I think there's, you know, if you kind of think that way with every instrument— in and of itself, I know we're talking about vocals right now, but you know, my to widen this conversation out a little bit, you know, if you think that way with every instrument and really think that way with every instrument, like how is this one guitar making the most impact, you know, or maybe it's getting out of the way for the vocal. Like what's what needs to be in the front? What needs to what, what's causing the emotion? You know, I mean, the Red Hot Chili Peppers is like, you listen to some of their, you know, guitar licks and stuff like that, you know, that's just as impactful as vocals uh, on, on some of that stuff. There's, there's all kinds of great, of great examples of all that. And um, all the way back to classical music, I mean, you know, like before there were vocals in, at all. So, um, you know, I, th I think we're on the same page with that for sure. Okay, this is another thing I've noticed about your production. Um, what you were just talking about, where you approach every every note of every instrument like that with the total priority, how will it make the, the most impact? Um, and th this is definitely something I've noticed in your work. Um, and I've always really admired producers who I can tell that they do that. And that's something that's more, more of a thing in like pop production where uh, it, it can allow for that. But like two things. Number one, where does that come from? And number two, how do you know you're not overthinking it? Ah, uh, that's a, the second part of that question is actually the probably the most important part of the question. But I, I think that not overthinking it comes from a lot of times where you do overthink it, and then you hear somebody who did something in the same job in 15 minutes, and it took you four hours to do, and their job is better. So there, there is a fine line. There's a fine line of that you kind of got to trip and fall on your face on that sometimes. Um, I, okay, so my attitude of about it. So the way, the best way to explain this would be like the way that we did this most recent Papa Roach record over the summer was we we wrote the entire record like in the box, like in a small production studio where you know fake drums and you know just like Kemper plugged in, you know and and, uh, you know, SM7 with speakers on and just a bass plug right in DI and very like programmy and like in the box sort of thing. And then we went down to a bigger studio with a big Neve console and all the actual programming and everything that we did, we redid, but with like a big room and like live instruments. And we ran all the synths through guitar amps and compressed them. And, you know, I had an idea in my head because I've just had experience of like knowing what room compression does. Um, for depth. Um, and that's just an experience sort of thing. I think if once you, you know, work in different rooms, you kind of get an idea of what's going to work and what's not. Um, but w another thing that we did is we, in the parking lot, like it was, uh, you know, in North Hollywood up here, it's, it, it's kind of like middle of the summer, it's hot outside. And, 
you know, we're probably an hour away from Malibu, from the beach. And I remember Jacoby was like, man, I wish, you know, we should do a record on Malibu. And I was like, dude, I got an idea. And so we cleared the parking lot out of cars. And the next day we had a big dump truck come in and we dumped a big ass, like seven cubic yards of beach sand in the parking lot, spread it out. We brought, we brought a fire pit and we brought like a tiki bar and had like lawn chairs and umbrellas and, and just invited all our friends. And like the whole summer was basically us, you know, we would, we'd basically go in, we'd work and work for an hour and be like, cool. All right. Well, I got this tone, you know, anytime that I thought I was overthinking something, I'd be like beach, beach break. And we'd all walk out to the beach and we'd hang out and play volleyball or spike ball or whatever. And, and, uh, for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and then go back in. And it was so great. Cause it just, it, created that absence of thought there for a minute. So I could always pull myself away and never get too caught up in it. So I think that just taking small breaks, you know, from time to time and really coming back and, and listening is an important thing to prevent yourself from overworking and working yourself into a hole. That's one of the best production stories I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, most people don't think it's going to go that way, but they're like a dump truck full of what? <laughs> Sand. When, uh, when you, when you said, I've got an idea, like, I thought you were going to say something like we grabbed an M box and went to the beach. No. Like that's what I thought, that's what I thought you were going to say. We have done that before. Like not, Which not, is cool. That is very that's cool. What, that's what I thought you were going to say. I didn't no, realize no. it was like 10, 10 levels beyond. <laughs> yeah. The studio owner was like, absolutely. What the fuck are you doing? And I was like, listen, trust me. This is going to be awesome. We're going to clean it up. I promise. Um, Did they agree? Yeah, Afterwards. yeah, no, I was, he's great. His name is Lee Bench, and he's he's the fucking man. I love him to death. So, props to Lee. Lee over at the state. We're in the steakhouse in North Hollywood. So he's the fucking man. Love him. You know. Okay. So what it sounds like to me is, in my words. What you're saying is, you just need a better vocabulary. And if you have the vocabulary, uh, because you know that comes through experience. It like. Oh, some study, but also your vocabulary doesn't mean shit if you don't know how to use it, and that's uh, that that's the experience part. But that makes me think of uh, the Beatles, um, which I've I've studied them in in pretty great detail, and so I feel like they were the first to do this thing we're talking about, where you have songs with multiple styles, where like every single Every single part in there matters, like every note played. And so the thing that I know about them uh, is that they were a cover band for five years. They played seven hours a night and apparently didn't repeat a song once per night. Um, so they had this massive vocabulary of music that they could, you know, they could perform in real life, uh, which informed you know, which informed what they became. Sure, and it allowed it, them to be great songwriters. I mean, that's that's how, yeah. you know, kind of what I was talking about earlier with the cover music. It's like, it, you know, having that vocabulary is incredible because you can, you know, it imp basically it improves your tastes, essentially, is what is what I was saying earlier. And so... I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about the taste thing more. Um, it, it's But the thing is with the, with the Beatles is it's not just great songwriters. It's also like... Those ar production arrangement sure. things. Jeff where Emmerich, man. I mean, he just died, actually. Um, rest, in, rest in peace. But, man, I mean, what a... Have you read uh, his book, Here, There, and Everywhere? No, uh, but no, maybe I should. Uh, it's incredible because he, he really goes into detail about, um, you know, back then um, they thought that sound pressure 
uh, was damaging to mics, which obviously it is some kinds of mics, like ribbon mics and stuff like that. But I mean, there, they, there was a rule at Abbey Road where you couldn't put microphones had to be like, I think it was like a foot and a half or two feet or something off of a drum head surface. And he was, the, so he would just go in there and break all kinds of rules. He'd be like, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to see what happens when we put it right up next to the head. He was like the first engineer who was like allowed to do that. And wow, of course, changes. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's a re- really a pioneer. I mean, just and and you know what? It was just kind of like it goes to kids in their bedrooms, like in their bedroom studios on uh, you know Pro Tools or Logic or Cubase or whatever, and they're just like, you know, oh man, I only have a DI and a and a you know amplitude plug-in. Like, what can I do? Well, dude, go down there and you know what happens if you just don't use that and you just crank your preamp up and just distort the shit out of it what does this sound like if you blend that with an amp tone you know like get creative like don't feel like you even with metal records like you, you want to, everybody wants to sound like said whatever it is and i think that if you just if you learn how to just create even if it sucks and you're like oh that doesn't work but it might work for something else it won't suck forever too um if you improve your tastes and sure that's you i'm really really glad you said that because that's actually something that I've been preaching for a really long time, and I haven't heard, I really haven't heard anyone else say it, uh, that dare those to suck. words exactly. Yeah, dare to suck, but also improve your tastes to where you know you've got good taste, um, because then your good taste will inform your decisions. And so try to have good taste. Like, make, like ed- educate yourself um, to where... I mean, educate yourself in terms of if you want to know food, for instance, you'll go to nice restaurants and you'll research the best chefs. And when you're in certain towns, you'll go to those. That's how I knew where to pick in L.A., for instance. Like Always going I, to a URM I, dinner, by the way. I'm, I'm always <laughs> taking your recommendation. And actually, I'm going to text you next time I'm trying to take my girl out to, to dinner. I'm going to text you and see if you got any recommendation. You don't even live here. I, I mean, you, <laughs> you already got my, well, well, I got pro- my approval. I, I actually take the, that... I take it seriously though. Like it's just something I'm into and uh, I've gotten it. so many bad recommendations. That. I've gotten so many bad recommendations over the years that like I don't, I can't listen to other people very much. And so, and I don't ever want to be the person who gives a bad like, recommendation. You gotta, yeah, you got to check this out and yep. then end up ruining their night. But anyways, with music, I think it's a similar thing. Like you need to, you need to, work on your tastes uh outside of your skills you need to work on your tastes like you got to refine them if to do what you're talking about doing um well you, that's just the you difference have to refine them that's this there's there's plenty of guys out there who can make a a record sound like you know what i mean there's plenty of guys who can take a template and you can learn how learn the basic engineering school uh, skills to work in a studio like but that's not where most people i'm guessing who are on listening to this podcast right now, or, or wanting to eventually go, no, you know, well, most, some, but not really. Yeah, no. sure, but I mean, and if you, and if it is, then great, dude. Like Mazel Tov, enjoy it. Like you know, for me, I, I just, you know, like I said, I wanted to, I want to impact music as most as I can, and that's fulfilling to me. So you know, if you really want to make your own calls and produce your own music, you know, your taste is that's that's the limiting factor. It's not your skills. You know, because you can always learn the skills. Um, I think it's just, ref- but refining your taste is that's a much more that's a much more um, that's a trickier thing to learn. I think. Well, it takes. First of all, it takes years, and it takes that. 
I feel like it takes that passion that we were talking about that the instrumentalists need. You kind of need that passion for the thing that you're refining your tastes on. Um, like I did, uh, like I know that to refine my music tastes, um, I did a lot of not studying through school, but like my own study of other people's music. Like I'd sit there for, and I did this for years. I'd sit there and like write out everything I was hearing in a non, in a non-technical way, but I'd still write it out. Um, and I did this from the point where I was a teenager, like with orchestral music all the way through like Eminem or black metal. Like it didn't, it didn't matter. Um, like just, refine, refine, refine. Like you actually have to try to do it, I think. Um, but it really does pay off. How did you do it? I'm still doing it. I, I've, you know, I don't think that my taste is where I, I honestly even want it to be. I've, I'm every day I'm learning something new and, you know, always trying to, you know, get turned on. To, I feel like I have a pretty good threshold of like what I think is sucks like what I don't like to necessarily listen to but you know all the top music like the really big hits and stuff you can usually tell even if you don't listen to that genre you can usually tell why I I can at least now I'm like okay I can see why that's a massive hip hop hip hop single and you know I and that just comes from loving music honestly and not being um not being too proud or too like you know stuck in my own ways about like oh I only listen to you know, hip hop music. And I don't like anything else. Like most of the big hip hop artists I know, um, th like for example, um, this guy, uh, Yo Gotti, um, who's a Memphis, Tennessee boy as well. And he, he's great, man. It's super, super talented guy. And he's very successful. And, and he, he like, he's like, Oh yeah, man, I like that rock stuff. Like I'll get down with that. Like he listens to rock music sometimes or he listens to you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he listens to all kinds of stuff. And a lot of guys like that are, are, you know, it's just about like listening to everything and being able to listen to everything. Like nobody at the top of their game is only focused on what they're making. You know, that's just, I don't know. That's my experience though. So you can't like, I don't think you can make something world-class without appreciating what's world-class. Absolutely not. And I mean, you brought up the Beatles and here we are on a, you know, generally heavy music podcast. And I, I just think that like, if you're, you know, if, if you don't at least, if you at least can't, it may not be what you want to listen to every single day, but if you can't like turn something on and find something that to appreciate about it, then, you know, you, you might want to check your head and see where you're, see where you're at, you know, and, it, and, and move it, your standards it, around a little bit, I think. That's, I think, some of the best advice someone can can take. And you know what's interesting, too, to tie this back to those instrumentalists who are, you know, the super passionate guys that are, like, best in the world. They never feel like their skills are good enough either, kind of like you just said. You don't think your tastes are where you want them to be. Like, these guys that are, like, the best in the world at guitar, they, even though they are the best in the world at guitar, they don't, they don't, feel that way they don't feel like their journey is done they always are working at it that's the thing though is that the journey is the the reward it should be and that's not how our society really makes it out to be i i absolutely i follow this guy gary v on instagram i don't know if you know who he is oh, but, he's great but i love him i love him so much because he really just straight to the point just kind of says look if you hate the journey then you're you're fucking up you're in the complete wrong 
thing. And this whole mentality of like, oh man, you know, these memes I see on accounts that are like, oh, well, you know, this is me like going to work on Monday and Monday sucks and Friday is awesome because the weekend and, you know, it's cool to like take breaks and have fun on the weekend. I love going on trips and doing cool shit on the weekends, but dude, like I work every day, like on the week, even on the weekends, my wife drives my wife crazy. Like I love everything I do. I don't always like, you know, there's shit that I have to do that I don't like to do sometimes, but like overall, like the picture of every day, what I get to do when I, you know, go to work or get up in the morning, it's just like, I'm stoked. You know what I mean? And I think if you're not stoked, then adjust your path, adjust your trajectory a little bit. You know, there's- That's what I did. Like you said, man, you know, if you're not happy, go do something about it. If you don't like what you do, then figure out a way to like eventually not do that. And I mean, I'm not saying quit your job if you don't like it. I'm just saying like figure out a way to eventually quit your job if you don't like it. You know, like it's not, it's not about, uh, and that's how you're going to be good. And, you know, you said something about talent and, you know, you were like, well, I'm not, I wasn't the best producer, but like I was pretty good, but not the best producer. And so I decided to do something that I'm absolutely the best at. And I, agree you are the best at this so I think that there's and and it seems like you're you're much happier now that you've fully devoted your life into something that you not only are talented at but also you're passionate about and you know man I honestly uh and this is funny because I talk you know our whole business is built on uh you know great producers but when I was producing full-time I felt like my life was was like I was fucking up my life. Like it's not, it's not for me to do it full time um, like that. It's just not my path. So it was, it's interesting that this is also a purely individual thing. And so you, you really do need to find what it is that you can do because if you're, if you're in the kind of headspace that I was in, it really will prevent you from, like you're not going to be able to stick it out through the lean times. You're not going to be able to, you're just not going to be able to, like you're not going to have, and there was going to be other people like Colin Britton who do get stoked every day, um, who are, you know, who it's, I don't want to say up against, but like there's other, like bands will go to people who, who are stoked every day. Who are stoked every day. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, they that's will. That's what it is. You're, you're 100%. And I mean, like I told you, I mean, when I went to the URM dinner, I was just blown away by like, first of all, the amount of talented people that were there. And second of all, uh, you know, about how like really, like how many people's lives that you guys are are changing, um, young people and or old people, whoever, like that are subscribing to this podcast and who are into, you know, music production. I, you know, I know this guy, um, this this producer duo from Sweden, they're called Jack and Coke, and um, they're it's so a good name. It's a great name. They're they're so great, and um, and one of the fellas uh, in Jack and Coke were uh, he's I guess he's probably near forty now, and he's only been doing like producing music now for maybe I think he said he started producing music. He had another job. He had like two kids, and one day he was like, you know what? talk to his wife. I, I've always loved music and I kind of like dabbled in it a little bit. I think I want to full-time switch over to trying to be a music producer. That's how I want to pursue my path. And how old was he? He was 36 when he started. So like Dave Pensado. So yeah, I guess I actually don't know Dave's story, um, but, but he switched, just randomly switched over. And actually I think Howard Benson was similar. He was working like as an airline, like 
engineer or something and just decided he wanted to start producing bands. You know, you can do it at any time. And now he's like super successful. This guy I'm talking about is super successful. He's had several, several like big pop hits and his big dance hits in the, in the UK and in Europe. And I mean, and he's just like so stoked and he just, you know, it, there's no time limit on it. I think you just kind of got to follow what you want to do and not be afraid of that. And then you're going to find, you know, you will find eternal happiness. Definitely don't be afraid of it. And, but that's actually a deeper statement um, than some people may realize that don't be afraid of it because the thing that you're going to go up against in addition to other people not understanding your vision is that um, sometimes if you've had one vision for a while, it's it's very tough to accept that that's no longer you because you do have to kind of redefine yourself or accept that you're not the same person. People love that. People really vibe off of that. That goes back to what you were talking about, vocal production, the confidence. Like when you have that... When you don't have fear in your life, um, and, and you're and you're re- like you can kind of find happiness without having fear, then you're gonna find that's where confidence is, and that's how you relate to artists because then they're like, okay, this guy knows himself or herself and knows where like knows how to help me because this is what they're passionate about, and then they're conf- it's just like going to a doctor's office. You know, you wouldn't want your doctor to feel like have like a nervous energy you want them to be very comfortable like you know before they freaking like you know whatever work on your on your you know same thing you want to feel confident confident in who you're working with and um, I said this earlier it's a service industry you know it's a cool service industry but it is you're serving other people and you want to make them feel comfortable with you and lack of fear is the number one thing I mean that's I think that's my best asset as a as a person is I genuinely just don't give a fuck what anyone else thinks about me or my work. I, I love what I do so much and I try to exhibit positive energy to the people that are around me. But if, you know, if you're like, oh, I really don't like Colin Britton, I'm like, well, that's cool. You're entitled to that opinion, but I, I don't really care. But I also, that's a result of, you know, my mom was really strong and was always like, you know, you're going to be awesome. And some people don't have that and, you know, but that's something I should tell people because I want them to know is like, you know, in whatever you decide to do, the music industry is so competitive, you know, there's no time for fear. Like if I don't get a project or if I get beat out by somebody else for a mix or whatever, then I'm like, you know what? Like, all right, let's, that's, I would have liked to have had that, but I'm not dwelling on that. Like I'm so busy. I'm, I'm so busy with worried about the next six projects that I'm trying to get. You know, I don't really have time to sweat what I sweat any losses. Like your losses are kind of what help, you know, propel you to being great, you know, feed off of those. It's funny. Like back when Nail the Mix was in its infancy before we, you know, now we have like this big track record, but we didn't have this track record at the beginning. Obviously nobody has a track record in anything they're doing at the beginning. But uh, so it was real hard to move up and like to be like, hey, a uh, band, can we use your files? Hey, producer, come on this thing. Like we're legit, we're credible. It was really tough to like to get people making real records to do that. And we started talking to this one guy who um, has made several multi-platinum records, who's very well known. Uh, he was going to be our first big thing. And he was such a piece of shit that we dropped it. We dropped it. 
Yeah, we just walked away. Um, we're like, you know what? We will find somebody else uh, and it'll be fine. But the point is that like the no fear thing really makes a difference. Like you cannot, and also you can't sit there and dwell. My friend, I, you know, I told you my friend and mentor, my Cato, I keep bringing his name up, but he, you know, I, I would always call him up and be like, Hey man, like, I just don't know what to do with this master chain that I have. You know, he'd be like, dude, I got you. Like, this is it. And he would tell me specifically exactly what he was using. And, you know, I maybe couldn't afford at the time, all that stuff. And now I've learned that it worked so well that I actually went and bought all the hardware eventually, you know, of the plugins that he told me to get. And he was always so great about like giving information. And Tom Lord Algae is the same exact way. I mean, I called, actually, I just called him earlier today and I was like, hey man, I had a question about a, an EQ and his preference, you know, cause I like to take into consideration. And he's so grateful. He's like, oh yeah, man. Like, cause his mix is never going to sound the same as mine and mine's never going to sound the same as his. And he understands that. And the relationship is so like open and cool that it just doesn't fucking matter. Like I'm not taking food off of his table and, you know, like it goes back to that whole thing about no fear. Like I'm not afraid of Tom taking work from me, you know, and I'm sure he's not afraid of me taking work from him. Like, it's not like that anymore. This is the, maybe the music industry at some point a long time ago used to be like this whole like mafia based, some mafia sort of like oh, cutthroat sure thing. It definitely I didn't was. exist. I didn't exist there. I just, you know, I didn't ever exist in that. And, and that's why Aren't I think- are you glad to? Oh my God. I mean, I just, some of these older school cats, why I asked that, some of the older school cats still kind of think that way. And I'm like, bro, y'all just literally don't like- I just think, I'm like, man, you're like an abused child. You know, you guys have like just been abused this whole time by this, yeah. this malicious <laughs> industry. It just doesn't exist that way anymore. You know, it's competitive. It but can't. It, it literally can't. I, like, why would you want to live in fear every day? Like, why would you want to do that? You know, and people, a lot of times I bring that up and, uh, you know, oh man, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. You know, I'm like, yes, you are. It's all right. It's fine. It's fine to have some insecurities and be afraid. We're, it's the music industry, dude. We're all insecure. Every one of us. Like that's the whole thing. That's the whole reason that this works is based out of insecurities, but you can't let fear rule your life. And I think that like, you know, that goes all the way down to like being afraid to move to LA because, you know, you're like, oh, well, I've recorded some local bands and maybe it's time to take a step up. You know, I have this this guy who's just started working for me, this kid, Dave Badiak, he's a Canadian kid. He's up in Toronto and he's done some some really small stuff that's been really good. And I've had him do some programming for me. And he finally was like, you know what? I'm moving to L.A. And he just like saved up his money and he's moving to L.A. And just like, like Alex. Just like Alex, dude. And uh, I'm, you know... It's just like he yeah, just like you did too. Swallowed the fear, dude. I dude, when I came to LA, I was, you know, had been with a, my girl for I was giving up, you know, potentially my girl of 5 years who I'm now married to, but um I told her I was like I have to leave. I'm sorry. I don't know when I'll be back. And I had to let that leave that up to the universe to decide and I quit my band that I'd been in, some of the guys I'd been playing with, my brother, some of the guys I've been playing with for like, you know, 8 years. You know, gave up freaking touring all over the place, a record deal, all these things that I worked so hard for. I literally gave it up on on a whim to try to make this work. And so it's all about swallowing your fear. Like this isn't about like how my how my choices are better than anyone else's. I'm just saying that what worked for me. And it's so freeing to not be afraid of 
what's going to happen. We have several uh, success stories in URM, and uh, like uh, I'll name three people. Like guy, actually, his name is Miami Dolphin. Uh, another dude named John Maciel, and then another guy named Mazin Ayub. They all came from different places. One of them went from Jordan all the way to LA. That's a huge jump. That's a huge another, jump. Yeah, and now he's doing well. Another one uh, was in San Diego, I believe, but he had like a ten-year relationship and like a ser- like an actual job and stuff, and uh, dropped all that. Went to LA. The another one moved from Connecticut. Like we've got several more of these stories, and then also everyone I know who's successful who wasn't born around opportunity. Some are, um, but. Most aren't. Uh, they share this, and some people, some people have had to learn how to swallow their fear and move on. And some people are more naturally gifted that way. But it doesn't change the fact that that is what you have to do. And that forward momentum you described, just like with vocal sessions, it's the same thing with this. If something doesn't work out, you just got to be moving on to the next thing. And I see a lot of people in our community especially at the very beginning, who will get hung up on one band that dropped them or one band that didn't oh, work yeah. out. Yeah. Well, guess what, man? I mean, uh, like I said, it's it literally is one of the most competitive industries in the whole entire universe is the music industry, regardless of whether or not you're in metal or hip-hop or anything else. I'm sitting here with my buddy Leo, who's, who's Yo Gotti's mixer and producer and I mean, he'd probably agree with me on that shit. It's just like, it's so competitive. Like, there's zero room for sweating the small stuff, dude. Because shit's going to happen just like every day. You know, stuff happens. And if you're going to just sweat over like, oh, these these guys don't like me anymore. Like, I'm I'm not mocking anybody, by the way. I'm just being like for real about it. I just think that there's just, there's no room for it. So swallow your fears, kids, and come, you know. Move to the big city. <laughs> well, there's no way, there's really no way that you can, number one, never have something fall apart, and number two, be friends with everybody. Um, there, Like, I know that you're supposed to be friends with everybody, but if over, and I know like one or two people who actually are friends with everybody, and it blows my mind. But <laughs> right, that's a skill set. It's, it's more than a skill set, it's freakish. Like, actually are friends with everybody that's, but most people I know are friends with most people, but have had a few falling outs over the years. Like, can't be friends with every single person forever. And that's, that's totally okay. Like, I've seen falling outs destroy people the same way that fear of losing a record destroys people. And just to what you just said, that shit happens. Shit will happen in your relationships. Shit will happen with your gigs. Shit is just going to happen. The thing that makes the difference is what you do right after it happens. 100%, man. And be original. You know, be original. Like, be you know, go chase chase stuff, break rules, have fun. It's all, it's all about having fun, dude. Like, there's just not enough. There's not enough money in this industry to, like, become, like, a billionaire like Paul McCartney anymore. So if you're into this, if you're into this business, don't be in it for money. You know, just be in it because you love it and you want to do it. And that's all, that's all that matters. And if you do well, I mean, there's enough money to where you can have a very good life. Absolutely. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. Maybe I I misspoke. I'm just saying it does not, this isn't like, 
No, you know, I, to- the I goal, totally the agree goal that. here isn't the goal here is isn't getting like no. You know what I mean? Getting rich. Like that's just not the because you you trade off you trade off that for for being um you know, for being fulfilled because this is what you do and being yes. the best being the best at it, I think. If being rich, like like rich, rich, not like not okay. I mean like fucking rich as fuck. Like a hundred like fifty million, a hundred million and up. Like seriously, like goddamn rich. That's this there's probably other things you should pursue. There's probably well listen, if that's what you if that's what you value, if that's what you want to do, and that's totally fine. You know, then, like I said, you, you're just going to find a lot more pitfalls and resistance to, to find like that level of of financial success in a, um, you know, in making rock music or whatever. But having said that, not impossible, just unlikely. It just you're regardless of whether or not that's what you want to do. Like if, if you want to do music and you're listening to this podcast this far along in the conversation, most likely this is really what you want to do. I, I actually think you're right if they're listening this far. I think that the cool thing is a lot, a lot of people ask, how do you develop your own, your own style with this stuff? And I really do think that the answer is what we've been talking about. It is be yourself and develop your tastes. And then, uh, then it'll just come through the technical, you know, it'll just come out because you are, you know, because you are who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, your tastes are always evolving. That's never, that never should stop. Like I said earlier, it never should stop. I mean, I love gear. I love analog gear, for example. Um, I always have. And I know a lot of guys who don't love analog gear. They don't, they don't get it. They're just like, you know, they got one preamp and maybe a compressor and then, you know, they do everything in the box. And that's totally fine too. But I find myself more expressive with like, you know, a Fairchild and, you know, Chandler, you know, a curve bender EQ. And like, I love that stuff because it's just, it makes me happy and it makes my sound happen quicker, you know? And that therein has sort of like, I found my style in, in just like experimenting with, that's just one example, you know, of like my mixing style or like my engineering style is like, that's one thing I really, I really like turning knobs and like feeling the Neve knob click you know, and like hearing it distort and like backing it off or maybe just making all kinds of crazy weird stuff. You know, like I said, compressing the rooms and running synths through guitar amps and shit like that. It's, that's just like when I, when I find the right sound, I just really get stoked on it. And like, you know, that kind of turns into a style, I guess. So it's just like, again, just more of what we were talking about. Do what makes you happy. And if, you know, makes something makes you happy, like making shit sound great, it makes you happy, then um, your style kind of like develops that way. Yeah, because you pursue the things that your taste dictates. Absolutely, and and your taste change because you know, like I, I listened to a mix I did, you know, two years or a year and a half ago, even, and I'm just like, shit, oof, man, uh, could have done that better or would have done that differently. But at the time, it was the best I knew how to do. So, you know, don't judge your old work too. I'd say that. You know, just keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Colin, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank um, you for having me. Stoked we were able to do this. For sure, um, man. It's been a long time coming. It has been, uh, but it's weird. Like, I, as soon as we started talking, it came together real quick. I think so. Definitely. Yeah. So thank you. And, of course. Uh, thank you. 
Let's do this again. Absolutely, man. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast has been brought to you by Telefunken Electroacoustic. Telefunken Electroacoustic has been following the tradition of excellence and innovation set forth by the original Telefunken GmbH of Germany that began over 100 years ago. With one foot rooted in the rich history of the brand and the other in new microphone innovations for both stage and studio applications, Telefunken Electroacoustic is recognized as one of the industry leaders in top quality microphones. For more info, go to tfunk.com. This episode was also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogrian and Tony Lindgren, the engineers that mastered bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator, Sepultura, Amon Amarth, and many more by using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator. You'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year. Visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today. If you like the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast, make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, and send us a message if you want to get in touch.